from Heterodox Academy. This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Hey, Half Hour of Heterodoxy listeners. This is Deb Mashik, the Executive Director of Heterodox Academy. And I'm sitting in today for Chris Martin, our regular host of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. And today we're doing a special simulcast with the How Do We Fix It guys. We're going to start with a commercial for... Heterodox Heterodox Academy. Academy. They're a neat organization and promote viewpoint diversity at colleges and universities. Deb Mashek is co-hosting with us today for the second time, and she's the head of the Heterodox Academy. Deb, can you give us like a quick thumbnail of what your mission is? Absolutely. So we work to create college classrooms and campuses that welcome diverse people with diverse voices and that equip learners to engage with that diversity, and that takes a lot of work on the habits of both heart and mind. And we're focused on promoting open inquiry and constructive disagreement. And if you ask why would we bother to do such things without these exchanges and without these diverse viewpoints, important ideas go unexplored, key assumptions go unchallenged, and tribalism goes unchecked, eroding the quality of research and teaching in higher education. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting an elevator pitch. (laughs) Love your enemies. Arthur Brooks. Political differences are tearing this country apart. Our nation is more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War. That anger is one reason that so many people feel that the country is on the wrong track, and a lot of parents worry that their children won't have the same opportunities that they've had to lead a good life. Today's episode is a joint podcast, How Do We Fix It?, and Half Hour of Heterodoxy are publishing this episode together. Deb Mashek of the Heterodox Academy is joining us. Our guest is Arthur Brooks, the president of the conservative-leaning American Enterprise Institute. Arthur is a social scientist, a musician, and author of Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you. Arthur, if, if we could start, can you tell us about that phrase, love your enemies. It speaks to really the the wisdom and radical teaching of the world's great religions, doesn't it? That's right. It's a subversive and it's it's sort of a crazy sounding idea. But the the idea behind most major religions ethically is that it's pretty pretty easy, pretty conventional to love your friends or to love your family, although, you know, people go in and out on that too. But to love your enemies is something entirely different. And when, when, when you look at the, the, the great religious teachers from Jesus to the Buddha, they talk about the, the, the fact that when you, when you love your enemies, you see them in a different way, you change your own heart, and as such, you don't destroy your enemies, you destroy the illusion that they were your enemies in the first place. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. Love Your Enemies is about the, the concept that here, particularly in the United States, we talk about politics. That, that we're treating each other as if we were intractable foes, enemies. And, and in point of fact, that's the wrong way of seeing each other. It's contrary to the, the, teaching of the teachings of the American founders. In your book, you write, we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. Yeah, that's right. So a- anger is a hot emotion. It's, uh, it's, it's not inherently unhealthy. It basically says, I care what you think, and I want to change the way that you think, because I care about... You, you know, it's an interesting uh, little bit of literature on this in the social psychology world that, that suggests that anger is, is not highly correlated with separation and divorce among married couples. The problem is when you take anger and you mix it with another emotion, which is disgust. 
Disgust, which treats another person as a pathogen. Not, not their ideas, the person per se. Anger and disgust are a compound, a toxic compound, kind of like mm-hmm. ammonia and bleach, where individually, <laughs> you know, they can, be, they can be troublesome, but if you put them together, they turn into a gas. And chlorine they can, gas. Yeah, chlorine yeah. gas. You don't want yeah. that. Yeah, that uh, figures that the editor of Popular Mechanics knew that. <laughs> the, well, it killed a lot of people in World War One. It did. It did indeed. It did indeed. We should explain that Jim is the former editor in chief of Popular Mechanics. <laughs> yeah. For li- for listeners of Half Hour of Heterodoxy, they may not know the stunning. It's a fact. pretty cool background. But anyway, that's not my point. You know, my point is that 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 what the kind of damage it could do that could do to people. Uh, contempt does to marriages. It does to families. It does to friends. And it does to the United States of America. What's happening is, and by the way, contempt was defined by Schopenhauer in the 19th century as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. It's a cold emotion. Anger's hot. Contempt is cold. It says you're not worth caring about. And when you express that, the research is very clear. People will become your enemy. That's the best way to alienate people. This is an incredibly impractical way to treat other people because if you're talking about politics or ideology or you want to convince other people, you want to persuade other people, the very worst way to try to persuade other people is by insulting them, by treating them with disdain, with contempt, God forbid, with hatred. And yet that's what we're doing in America today. And it's, it's, it's ripping us apart. And you, you talked about what contempt can do to our families and to our communities and to our democracy. What does contempt do to ourselves? When we feel contempt for others, what's the impact on the self? That's a really interesting point. So as you can imagine, when you're treated with contempt by another person, whether it's by a public figure like a politician talking about people like you, or whether you're being treated with contempt by a mob, an angry mob, let's say at a university, what it does is it it, it, lower, it raises your level of loneliness, it raises depression, it's correlated with anxiety, of course. But the interesting part to me is not that, that's pretty obvious. The interesting thing is when you treat another person with contempt, it's correlated with it, with increasing levels of stress hormones, that you increase anxiety and stress in your own life when you treat other people with contempt. There's nothing good that comes with contempt. And the, the basic problem here, by the way, is not that we dislike somebody else's ideas. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having disdain for somebody's ideas because they're wrong or, or, or even bad and evil. The problem is when we conflate people's ideas with those people themselves. You know, and separating ideas from people is a critical uh, uh, ability that we're supposed to be able to to maintain as adults. And, and yet, this is not what we're teaching on too many campuses. This is not what we're talking about in politics, even at the highest level of the American political structure. We're, we're conflating people and their ideas and dismissing them with contempt. And as such, it's creating enemies among people who should not be enemies. A lot of people might say that's fine as an argument against contempt, but your book goes a lot further than that and says love your enemies, which even for many religious folk is a very difficult concept to accept, hmm. especially in practice. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's and, and, and Richard, it's hard for me. Yeah. I'm not going to deny it. But is it, pra- is it practical? It, it is practical. And, and the reason I, 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 I call the book Love Your Enemies and not Be Civil to Your Enemies is because civility or tolerance are garbage standards. You know, anybody who says, you know, I'm, I'm, my wife and her are civil to each other, you'd say, 
boy, you need, you guys need counseling. Yeah. Um, or that my employees tolerate me. You'd say that I have a big morale problem <laughs> in my workplace. And, and, and forget even agreement, because agreement is a terrible standard. Agreement is a form of intellectual monopoly. We need to disagree as part of the competition of ideas. So we need something that's a much higher moral standard, and we need something that, that we can, in which we can disagree better. And the standard for that is brotherly love. The standard for that is actual solidarity, is putting ourselves morally in the place of other people. And, and I believe we can do it. Now, the reason I talk about loving your enemies is because I believe that contempt in our society today is not just a, a, a terrible thing that we do. I think it's a habit that we're engaged in. And I, in, in the book, Love Your Enemies, I talk about the, the, the part of the brain that processes habits, good habits and bad habits. It's an ancient part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which processes rewards. It bypasses the prefrontal cortex where you, where you have your conscious cognitions. And, and that means that you do things, whether you like them or not, without thinking about them. And that's how we communicate with other people in a very suboptimal way. When couples are quarreling and they're on their way to the divorce court, it's because they have terrible communications habits. They talk to each other in a way that's deeply, deeply suboptimal and dangerous, as a matter of fact. And so when we have the habit of treating other people with contempt, whether it's our spouse or our fellow Americans or people on campus or wherever it happens to be, we need to break the habit. And to break the habit, you have to do something new in the place of the contempt that you used to feel. You have to expand the, the range, the time between the stimulus that you have, the, the feeling that you have, and the response that you choose. The tendency is to just, you're treated with contempt, you feel threatened, you feel angry, you, you respond with contempt. You take the time, choose a reaction, and you need to choose something radically subversive and positive, and that's choosing love. You have an example in the book that I really enjoyed about uh, after you wrote your first book, you got a really angry, nasty email uh, of somebody just going through chapter by chapter telling you what a complete and total idiot you are. And it's the kind of thing all of us see every day to now on Twitter in shorter form. Yeah. People feel the need to, re to reach out and just tell people that they should just go climb under a rock. But you handled it in a really surprising way. What happened? So the first book, I had... I was a professor at Syracuse University before I came to the American Enterprise Institute in 2008. For 10 years, I was a professor after finishing graduate school. And I had the happiest life because professors have, or should have, the happiest life. You know, I was, I was beavering away in relative professorial obscurity, working with my graduate students. I'd written a bunch of books that nobody ever read because they were very boring. Um, but I wrote one book, which was equally boring, but it, a weird thing happened to me, which is it hit the news cycle in just the right way. The president said something about it. And my life changed overnight. And, and by the way, changed permanently to this day. Uh, what happened is a book about charitable giving. It had a lot of math in it. I remember it. Charitable giving. Yeah, yeah charitable and, and giving. And one of the, one of the concepts was that, that I believe that people of different ideological perspectives give as much as each other. Yeah, right? that's right. Well, the whole idea was that to, to test. It was simply an empirical book that said, who gives more, conservatives or liberals? Who gives more, secular religious people? Who gives more, poor people or rich people? And it turns out in every one of those cases... It's kind of surprising who gives the most because it contrasts with the people who think they give the most. I mean, virtue is a funny thing. Okay, so I published the book and I kind of waited for the phone to not ring. But it rang. And, and because weird things started, it just hit the news cycle just the right way and it started selling hundreds of copies a day. And, it, and I didn't know, this happens to people sometimes, happened to you know, Jonathan Haidt and some other people that we know and love, uh, that, that a college professor suddenly get into, the public, and get into public life. And, and I, the weirdest part was not the TV and radio I started doing suddenly. It was that I started getting email uh, from total strangers by the hundreds. 
it's very easy to get a college professor's email. You just look at the directory of the university. Actually, they stopped doing that mostly. But back in those days, it was easy. And I, and I got in, you know, every day, tons of email from people who'd read my book. And either they said, I loved it or I hated it, whatever. Anyway, a few weeks after the book comes out, I get an email from a guy in Texas. Dear Professor Brooks, you are a fraud. <laughs> now, it's just you know, it's a terrible way to start email. But yeah. I kept reading. And I noticed that this email is going to be like 5,000 words long. It's super long. It's going to take me 20 minutes to get through it. But I'm game. You know, I'm good sport. And I'm reading through this email, noticing that he is, as you mentioned, is going chapter and verse every way that my book is terrible. I mean, every data set, every assertion, every equation. It was unbelievable. Like the, the, the columns in table 3.1 are reversed, you idiot. Stuff like that. And, and, I, and I, for some reason, I was conscious of my feelings. And I noticed that I was thinking to myself, this guy read my book. <laughs> I was filled with gratitude because I had written tons of books and nobody read them. I mean, my family didn't read them. I mean, who would read them? I, question is, why would I write them? But that's a different question. And, uh, and so I decided, you know, got nothing to lose. Never met this guy. So I'm going to write him back. And I write him back. And I said, dear so-and-so, I know you hated my book. You think I'm a, you know, a hopeless stooge. Really stupid. But man, it took me two years to write that book and I put my whole heart into it and you read the whole thing. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. What happened next? So 15 minutes later, I get an email back from him and he says, dear Professor Brooks, if you're ever in Texas and want to get some dinner, give me a call. <laughs> there you go. From enemy to friend. Now, and I didn't, I'm not some saint. You know, I'm not behaving virtuously. I just did it by accident. By the way, I did not have dinner with that guy because I didn't, you know, want to end up, you know, chained to a pipe in his basement or something weird like that. But, <laughs> but, but it did teach me this very instructive lesson that you can change your own heart because I, I felt great when I wrote back that email. Nobody's ever said, you know, I wish I'd been more of a jerk with that mm -hmm. person. People are always glad that they passed up the opportunity to be a jerk, which I did by sheer serendipity. And then that guy, his heart changed. And I said to myself, that's an instructive lesson. That's what I think back to now that I'm more in public life and I hear insults constantly and I use them as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So this, one of the things I find myself reflecting on is love is natural. Mm. Um, so we have love, parental love, romantic love is near as we can tell universal, but, tribalism, but in decline, by the way, yeah, yeah. The romantic love is in decline in America. And then, but tribalism is also natural. Mm. And I'm wondering if contempt is, is also natural. And if so, how do we stack the deck in favor of love? So there, yeah, there is a lot of, I mean, and you as a social psychologist, of course, know this. And for me, even to talk about this is bringing coal to Newcastle to tell you about this. But of course, tribalism has, there's a lot of literature that suggests that people naturally form into tribes. But that, that proclivity is not destiny. This is the beautiful thing about we're the masters. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's this whole idea, you know, for the longest time we were a tabula rasa, that we were, it was all environment. It turns out that that was wrong. And then we swung back in the other direction and it was all about our genetics. Well, the truth is, I mean, the latest thinking about how we behave is that it's kind of 100% and 100%. We have all these natural tendencies, but they have switches. They have moral switches. We have conscious actions that can turn these tendencies off and on. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, the, the, the classic example of this is that, that alcoholism is a, has a hugely genetic predisposition. But if you turn off the switch by not drinking, if you have it in your family, you're not going to be an alcoholic. And, and the same is true for tribalism. Look, if you understand it and you don't want it, you can rebel against it. You can be the master of yourself. This is the most encouraging thing about being fully human, that we're not like dogs. We're not like, you know, 
some pack animal. We're human beings, and we can decide to do something truly subversive for our own nature. My own view is that if you're not at war with your own deleterious proclivities, you're a slave. You need to be a master. You must be at war with yourself. The day that you declare peace on these tendencies is the day that you start to decline. And man, this is the most beautiful thing about these religions. I mean, the Buddha was telling people to do things that were against their nature, and that was the beautiful thing. If it feels good, do it, is the message of fools. Christianity is subversive to our nature for a reason, and that's, that's what I want. Arthur, you're a well-known conservative, and when I told a few friends that we were going to speak with you, uh, one of them said, oh, he's conservative, he's head of the American Enterprise Institute, um, so I'm asking this as a liberal. Why should liberals read your book? That's a good question. Were you talking to my wife, by the way? Was she the one who said the... <laughs> Your wife is a liberal? No, my, my wife is no, Although I do come from a mixed family. I'm, you know, my, I'm from Seattle, and my mother was an artist. My father was a college professor. So, you know, guess what their politics were. Um, I'm sort of the black sheep, politically, of the family. Um, you know, why should they read my book? The same reason that I should read somebody's book who disagrees with me because I want to have a more interesting set of experiences. You know, what's really distressing about what's going on in the United States today is that we silo our sources of information such that all the the television programs and radio shows and the newspapers and the columnists and all our sources of data of stimulus are those that say you're right and the other side is stupid. Well, I don't want to live that way. That's that's super boring to me to live that way. And it should be boring to everybody else because, and, and by the way, it should be alarming to other people because that's exposing yourself to being manipulated, being, being used and being bullied by people on your own side. I have data that show that seven, something like 7% of Americans are kind of what I call the outrage industrial complex. And they're everything from politicians to members of the media to parts of the entertainment industry to parts of academia that are manipulating other people to hate their fellow Americans because they think differently than they do. They dehumanize people and they profit from it. They get they get better careers. They get more clicks. They get sometimes they even get rich and famous by setting American against American. So the reason that I want to read things that are outside my silo is because I want to humanize people who disagree with me. And, and, and I, I think that political progressives who, you know, people I grew up with, people I love, um, who, by the way, in many cases, I'm quite sure are right and I'm wrong. <laughs> I just don't know in what yet. And I'm not going to find out unless I read what they have to say. And I think we should share ideas and love each other. Richard, your question, uh, I think, reflects something that comes up in Arthur's book, which is the a priori assumption on somebody that, well, if that person's a conservative I already know what he's probably going to say, and I know why he's going to say it. And a conservative might make the same assumption about, uh, about a liberal. And you talk about a, a concept in the book called the, the motive attribution asymmetry. Yeah. I love that yeah, kind yeah. of psychological, psychological yeah. jargon. Explain that. Yeah, 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 I had no idea what that was. When yeah, I first, yeah, yeah, no, it's a great thing. And it's, it's, uh, the, there's a, a, a guy who teaches at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University named Adam Waits. And uh, Adam Waits uh, has written about motive attribution and symmetry. What is it? It's a case where two sides opposing each other in a debate or in a conflict, both sides think that they are motivated by love, but the other side is motivated by hatred toward them. You see it typically in something like the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Both sides believe that they're correct and motivated by love, and the other side is simply motivated by hatred toward their group. 
Now, that's something pretty conventional in a, in, a, in a warfare context. What we don't like to see is in a political context, because po- politics is not just war by other means. It should be a way that we adjudicate disputes in a democratic and a competitive way inside a peaceful country, at least the way we understand it in the United States, or should. Right? Yeah, I, I do think you're raising a really interesting point, is that I think in America, we think this is a uniquely American problem. Um, and... It's not. it's not. I mean, it's it's, it's happening in Britain with Brexit. No, it's no. happening in the Middle East. It, it's, oh, no, no. no. It's I mean, I, pretty, I, I spent years living in Catalonia, um, uh, in Barcelona, as a matter of fact. And, and there are families that can't talk to each other because of the Catalan. They can't talk to each other because of the Catalan independence question. I see families that are being ripped apart. And right here in the United States, one in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or a close friend because of politics since the 2016 election. It's, it's catastrophic. Why? Because the level of motive, attribution, and symmetry. I motivate by love you if you're on the other side are motivated by hatred toward me and people like me that is as great in american politics today as it is between palestinians and israelis and that is horrible it tears people apart we don't like it we don't know how to deal with it we don't know how to fix it it's uh, it's it's propelled by these communications ticks that we've got it's fired up and it's manipulated by the outraged industrial complex and we got to fix it and the whole job of my book is to talk about how we can actually fix that. And it can start with each one of us because we are the beginning of the movement that we want to see. So let's talk more concretely about that. What, what are the, the tips, the advice, the takeaway? How, how do we fix it? So I, you know, I, I talk about it all the way through the book. And th- this book is really, it's the most how-to guide of anything I've ever written. I'm I was not, actually I, surprised by yeah. how much it was. Really a manual. Yeah for ways of thinking and interacting, not just a philosophical or political yeah. argument. Yeah, well, I wrote the book twice. And the first time I wrote the book, it was just what what behavioral social scientists like me do, which is to state a problem and, and have a whole bunch of data that show that it's a huge problem and then lament the problem and talk a little bit about the problem and then, then stop. Well, the directions for future research. Yeah, yeah, the directions for the future research. <laughs> That's also a yeah. journalism problem. Yeah, too. it yeah. is a, and part of the reason is because we we're very good at identifying complex human problems, and then when we can't find a good complicated solution to the complex problem, we have to let it be, or we have these just a, a terrible little perfunctory last uh, last chapter that has five complicated policy solutions for a deep, complex, and adaptive human problem that's spread out over an entire treatise. I said, I don't want to do that. So what I did was I spent a lot less time showing what is manifestly clear to everybody who's walk, putting one foot in front of the other in America today, which is we got a big problem. That's the easy part. We have the complex, adaptive human problem. And I spent the entire rest of the book, which is at least three quarters of the book, saying, okay, here's how we think we got to fix it. And I basically talked about how I've tried to fix it in my own life. Like I'm, I'm the head of a, a, a big institution in Washington, D.C. It's been around for a long time. It's at the head of, or it's at the center of, of a lot of polemical political stuff. And what have I done to try to be part of the solution to the problem? How, how do I understand the, the role of leadership, of being a good person, of being ethical about how to try to fight? How do I personally try to fight against the scourge of identity politics while not shedding the, the common human stories that actually that should and can bond us together? And, and, I, and I distill it in the very end to you know, five things that every American can do. Well, let's walk through those. Yeah, sure. So let's start with um, rebellion. You know, if, if, if it is in point of fact the case that 93% of us hate how divided we are as a country, but we keep 
participating in, in, the, in, the, in the problems that we have, the first thing to do is to start muting the 7% of people who don't hate it and who, as such, are firing us up, that are encouraging us to fight each other, American against American, human against human. So basically, my, my advice, my first step, step in, the, in the process is standing up to the man, <laughs> as it were, the people who are using their leadership to, to make us hate more, even though we don't want to do that. And, and I have a lot of tips on how to do that. You know, go through the list of the people that agree with you, the people that, in your favorite newspaper, the people on TV, the people on, that you're listening to in media, your, maybe your favorite professor who says, you're right, and the other side is stupid and evil. Make a list of them, not on the other side. Make a list of the people on your side and X them out. It doesn't mean being contemptuous toward them. It means, it means self-defense. Mm-hmm. It means muting those voices such that you can get a, a clearer view of what's actually going on around you without being blinded to it. That's step one. Another step that you talked about, I'm not sure if it was on the list of five, but it really struck me, was as you're trying to interact with people in a positive way, if you can't quite muster up love, at least you can fake it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So that isn't one of the steps, but it's related to the steps for sure. Because one of the one of the steps is don't show contempt for anybody under any circumstances. But you, you can't break a habit by saying just don't do it. You can't say to somebody, just don't smoke. The, the way to stop smoking is to do something every time you want to smoke. Why? Because the nucleus accumbens, the part of your brain that governs habits, requires reprogramming. And the way that you reprogram it is you get a stimulus, you wait before you react, and you put something else instead of the old reaction. So every time you want to smoke, you know, drink. <laughs> so, <clears throat> for example. Okay, so every time you feel uh, that you feel contempt, what do you do? You show, I have this story in there about asking the Dalai Lama this question, what do I do when I feel contempt, Your Holiness? And he said, show warm-heartedness. It's very Dalai Lama, right? Very Buddhist. And I said, what if I don't feel warm-hearted? And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because, you know, attitude follows action, not vice versa. It's an incredible empirical regularity of modern social psychology is to show that you can... You can make the personality that you want. If you want, to show, if you want to feel more grateful, show more gratitude. If you want to be more loving to your spouse, act as if you were more loving. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. If you want to be happier, smile, crinkling up the corners of your eyes, which are these little muscles called the orbicularis oculi muscles, that, and they govern a truly happy smile. Is that faking it? It is faking it, and that's the beautiful thing. That you can fake it, and you can build the cognitions that you want. It's a, it, 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 this is the essence of mastery, is mastery over your own brain. You're, you're, not a, you're not a slave to your emotions. On the contrary, you can change your emotions. One of the, the, the most illustrative and interesting teachings about, about humanity that the Buddhists uh, teach is that the, that the emotions are an illusion. Emotions are an illusion of what's actually going on around us. Emotions are useful for, for helping us to, to, to process actual experiences around us and to process threats, for example. But they're an illusion a lot of the time. You, know, you, you, you feel tired and then you, you just like right now when we're talking, I'm on a book tour and I just had this new book come out, right? And, and, and I've been doing a lot of interviews and you know, television and speeches and I'm not sleeping very much and it's kind of easy for me to get down and, and my emotions will get wrapped around this thing. I'll say, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this, I don't think anybody really likes my book. And then I think, you know, that, that emotion is an illusion. There's nothing new. I mean, there's nothing that I, I have no new information as such, since your emotions tend to trick you. <laughs> you need to actually own your emotions. Is that right, Deb? You're, you're the psychologist. I concur. <laughs> Thank about, you, doctor. Yes. What about uh, step number three? Step number three is to get out of your bubble. 
yeah. Is to go where you're not invited necessarily. Say things people don't expect and listen to people who disagree with you with love. It's so empowering to do this. These days, it's harder and harder to find people who disagree with you because we're deeply siloed. Part of it is this this terrible and metastatic influence of social media. And social media is what people cocoon themselves in. They substitute human relationships with virtual relationships with people. And that's a dangerous thing to do because every link, every human link you make, you break with somebody and put in an electronic link instead, you will become more depressed. You will become more anxious. You will become more lonely. It's very dangerous, very bad thing to do. Social media should never be a substitute for relationships, only ever a compliment. But it's also a dangerous business because you can surround yourself. You can curate your friend group in ways that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. You can silo your information. You can also do this by going to university where you only take classes and talk to people where people agree with you. And this happens all the time at, at major American universities. They were designed so that different people would be mixed together. But in, we get more homogeneity. We get more racial and gender diversity, but we get more ideological homogeneity. Very dangerous business. Don't do that. Fight against that. Find people who are really, really different. Embrace radical diversity, the scary kind, which is <laughs> idea diversity. It's a thrill, actually. <laughs> that's that's right at the core of heterodoxic. Yeah. I know it is. That's why this is really heroic work that you're doing. This is the reason, by the way, that that, that Heterodox and all, all the affiliates, the products and the things that you're doing at, at, at Heterodox Academy are, are getting really famous really fast. Because you do this stuff and people go, oh, oh yes. Oh, I want that. I want that so bad. Yeah. Which is really encouraging to me. Number four. Yeah. I can't remember number four. What's number four on my list? <laughs> I wrote me, the book. <laughs> you mentioned loneliness. Yeah. And this is something that comes up uh, in your work and that of, of a lot of other thinkers, really going back more than 20 years, as we look at the kind of atomization of our society, this tendency towards contempt yeah. to people we don't agree with feeds into it. and um, But it's having some really profound and profoundly distressing uh, impacts on our society what contempt itself is no the loneliness of the isolation that yeah. we're seeing increasingly i have a i have a podcast um right now and this the, it's called the Arthur brooks show isn't that original and i have uh on the in the second season of the podcast i'm, I'm focusing on love and one of the episodes is on love of friends and what you see is that loneliness is increasing in america today some people say that it's actually an epidemic cigna the health services company actually has a whole division of people working on the loneliness epidemic because it's so it's you know depression is such an expensive phenomenon but it's also just such a, a terrible phenomenon in people's lives anxiety uh the whole idea that that nobody knows me well these days 13 percent of americans uh say that they they have no close friends you know that that nobody actually knows them it's an extraordinary thing and it's going up and it's especially among young people and and, and we know why we're, we're losing our ability to make friends with social media uh, there's a there's an epidemic of fear. John Haidt and, and Greg Lukianov, when they wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, for my money, the most interesting thing in that book is that there's an epidemic of fear among young people. That the big problem is that that, that you know that the, the campus uh, culture wars that are going on are not the are not actually the problem. They're the symptom of the problem, and it's a it's a fear epidemic that kids don't get out of the house, kids don't date when they're in high school. Dating in high school is down 30 percentage points since I was in high school. It's extraordinary. How can they measure that, though? 
they measured that by asking people, did you date last year? And they found that when I was uh, in, in the 1980s, 85% of people in high school, high school seniors were dating. And today it's 56% of high school seniors are dating. And you're not skeptical of that number at all? I'm not really because I have teenagers and I was one. <laughs> and and so it's basically between the two cohort groups that I belong to and know the best. And you know, it's, it's funny when I talk about these, whether people, something or less, something like a third less likely to be in love than people were when I was that age. And that's a, that, for my money, that's, that's, that's because people are fearful of relationships. They're fearful of being together. They're fearful of, of having any conflict. They're fearful of being rejected. And I asked my son, my son's a, a junior at uh, Princeton. And I said, is this true? And he said, no one dates. Well, that's a really dangerous phenomenon. This, the stuff that we hear on college campuses of I reject any possibility of being challenged in my ideology or the way that I see the world, the knock-on effect or the, the parallel effect of that or the, the same phenomenon, a branch on the same tree is I'm not going to date anybody. I'm not going to have, I mean, conflict is conflict. You got to be an entrepreneur with your life, <laughs> right? So. I'm curious, what does it mean to be present in the lives of others? So I'm thinking about maybe you with your sons, you with your coworkers, you with your strangers, you with that person who throws a piece of trash out the window, you know, driving in front of you and you feel contemptuous. At least I I do at that moment. I'm wondering. Well, that's justified. (laughs) Yeah, I could be contemptuous there. You're contemptuous of the action, not of the person. There you go. That's a very important thing to do. You could be contemptuous of the ideology, but never of the person. And if you can't, we can't make that distinction. It means we're falling prey to people who don't want us to make that distinction because they're profiting from Mm -hmm. you thinking that somebody else is the other, as opposed to simply thinking, I disagree with the way that person sees the world. And, now, and that's being present with somebody, by the way. You can be absolutely present with somebody, even though you, that you hold one of their opinions in disdain, if you say, still, that person's my sister, that person's my brother. I think curiosity also plays a part there. Like, I'm not going to try to convince you you're wrong and I'm right, but I'm just, I'm really curious. How are you seeing the world? Yeah. And whatever you say, wherever you are, I can, I can accept that. It, I don't have to it's not trying to change me per se. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things actually I remember my fourth rule. I mean, uh, it's been, it's been, it's been well, a wait, long we'll come days. back to that. Yeah. Yeah. But the Sorry. whole, but this is your point, um, which is that you, if you want to connect with somebody, and this has really changed my life a lot because if I tried to put these things into action, I tried to live the principles in this book before I wrote the book. So I knew it was, so it's not, you had to field test it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I did a sort of ethnographic study on all the people I disagree with. And, and one of the key things is to look for the, the moral roots of what somebody else thinks, as opposed to simply, you know, it's funny, there are all these books and, and, and you know, articles that you see about how to be an active listener. What they all are is instructions on how to, how to pretend you're listening. Right. What you really need to do is to listen deeply for the moral roots of what somebody else is trying to say. And one of the things that I recommend is when you're listening to somebody with whom you disagree, you start by saying, can I see whether or not this is what really motivates you and go deep, deep, deep to what's written on their hearts and see whether or not it's right. Almost inevitably, if you do that and you get to the point where you say, yeah, that's it you're going to say, I, I think the same thing. And what we disagree on is different ways to get that. And that is a deep human connection. That is pure pleasure and satisfaction when you get to that point. Well, that's also, De- sorry, I just, no, gonna, no. that's also, you know, you were talking about loneliness and that sense of not being seen, but to go to that, to the, to the heart of what's written on someone's heart, to see that is saying, I see you right. and I care for you. I mean, yeah. I, I care for the hurt. I care for the pain, the anxiety, yeah. the fear. Yeah. And that's a very common human experience. That is that, that, that that's love. That's the yeah. essence of what it means to love another person. 
You know, to love the other person, St. Thomas Aquinas defined love as to will the good of the other as other. Think about it. It's not, I, I want your good for my sake. It's to, I will Deb's good. I will Richard's good. As I will Richard's good as Richard. And the only way that I can do that is to find out what's written on Richard's heart, to look at it, and, and then to respect you enough to say, I have an idea. I, I got to tell you about my idea to meet your objective. <laughs> and that's how we're supposed to be talking to each other, as opposed to going straight to the disagreement. See, see what happens is there's a, a political science theory that says that that you should that there should be common moral the moral moral core in a society around which different ideas compete. And when they do that, they're like electrons rotating around the center of the atom. But when the moral core collapses, then the ideas, competing ideas, hit each other head on, and that's a that's a it's a holy war over politics, and that's really deleterious, and that's where America is today. I was struck by your rule number four, which gives us a model for how we can disagree mm. and actually states that disagreement can be healthy, but it has to be done right. Yeah, so one of the big mistakes that we make is when people are disagreeing in a, in a, in a damaging and a hurtful way is to say, well, let's just agree more or let's just agree to disagree well, that's wrong disagreement's great because competition is great you know it's uh, nobody objects to competition politically it's called democracy as a matter of fact we demand it one party elections are pretty pretty boring um or and and elections that are not free are terrible um most most of us the mainstream viewpoint is is that competition is good in in economics it's you know markets that bring out excellence in people not unfettered of course we actually need some regulations and it certainly should be bounded by morality but the competition of ideas is actually the most critical of all because we're a society that's being propelled by ideas, not by conventions and not just simply by biological stimuli, but by ideas. That's what makes us fully human. And without a competition of ideas, which is also known as disagreement, we get stagnation and mediocrity. So we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. And this is what we talk about is finding the moral core and, and competing on ways to achieve it. I'm a little surprised by number five. Because to hmm. me, it's like, duh, which is disconnect yeah. from unproductive debates. Yeah, you know, disconnect even from unproductive stimuli. You know, we are truly overstimulated. Uh, the most amazing thing is the extent to which because we can know stuff, we have to know things all the time. We have to know them continuously. And right now. Right now, right yeah. now. And the, you know, the, the social media is the worst for this because you have access to all the information in the world quickly and you can get, you know, people that are more or less in your network can be pushing information to you constantly. That's, that's not healthy. That's actually not, certainly not the way our brains were neither developed nor have evolved. We have not evolved sufficiently such that we can filter information at a, at, at a really high rate and, and continue to maintain any sort of emotional and psychological equilibrium. And the result is we're out of equilibrium. The most extraordinary thing for me as an, as, as an academic is I'll see people at really distinguished universities, people I've, I've, I've admired my whole career, who have stopped writing books, have stopped writing articles, and are simply tweeting 40 and 50 times a day. They've substituted Twitter for their economic or their for their they've substituted twitter for their academic corpus of activities it's actually really really sad we don't need to be connected very much we don't need information to the extent that we're getting it we certainly don't need to be sharing it and so one of the ways to be a happier person and you know in the end of the day the reason i wrote this book is really two reasons we want to be more persuasive and nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement it's just a truism 
we also want to be happy because we deserve to be happier people. We need the, and something, and things are systematically making us less happy. GDP per capita has been going up for decade after decade. Happiness, well-being is stagnant and at best and probably declining. There's no policy that's going to fix this. We all know in our hearts that the problem is in our hearts. <laughs> And so we need the secrets to this. So the, the point of this book is how can you be more persuasive and at the same time become happier and more successful as a leader? And a lot of that starts with just being weirdly less informed about polemics and controversies in our midst. I want to pivot to something that your own life might inform. And it's something that's in the news right now, this crazy conspiracy of all these rich people to bribe schools and coaches and and test takers to get their not particularly well-qualified kids into these elite institutions. And it's gotten, Richard and I were talking earlier about this hunger for status that centers around higher education and how that is actually hurting the country. And I looked at, you know, your, at your career, as you said, you spent about 10 years out of academia, didn't finished college, and you went and worked at a trade. It's almost like someone who went and decided to be a carpenter for 10 mm-hmm. years and then went back to, to college. And yet, uh, here you are, one of the preeminent thinkers in our, in our public discourse. Obviously, and, and you didn't, when you came back, you didn't go to Harvard. You're going to Harvard to teach now. Yeah. I couldn't but you didn't get start out there. there. It turns out the way to get to Harvard you can't get in is to join the faculty. <laughs> um, it's a great country. It's so great I, country. I'm fascinated with this circuitous route you took. And maybe that shows that people are too hung up on getting yeah. into Harvard in the first place. Yeah, you know, this is, uh, there, there's, there's, it's funny. You know, we say that, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that there's a natural tendency toward tribalism. There's a natural tendency toward contempt. There's a natural tendency to put people in the other category, in groups and out groups. I mean, this is what we naturally do, but we can't give into it. And one of the things that we tend to is creating natural hierarchies. You know, if you leave people to their own, their, their basic proclivities without any sense of ethics, without any sense of propriety, if we, without any sense of basic humanity, what will make me happy? They'll, they'll wind up putting themselves into status hierarchies. They'll buy, you know, b- becoming a baron of some kind. And they'll, they'll you know, figure out some way to, to, to increase their status in society. In American society today, where we've had this insane system of, of trying to push college for all, where we basically say increasingly, if you don't go to college, you're, you're less somehow, you're socially less, you're probably not very smart. We have all these dumb expressions like, that guy's as, that guy's as stupid as a bag of hammers. Well, man. I, Talk I, about contempt. That's contempt. It's also contempt for the trades right there <laughs> yeah. is what that comes down to. And you know that's wrong. That's, it's also a really, really damaging thing. Not everybody should go to college. It's, there's all kinds of good things that you can and should do. We have a huge worker shortage in America a shortage of of skilled tradesmen in this country. And the reason is because we have college for all mentality. And and the result is, you know, people who are not paying attention to this, they want high status. Their kids are not very motivated. Their kids are not, maybe not very talented in academic things. And and so they basically do what they have to do, which is what people have done for time immemorial, which is buy their their kids way in. It's amazing. I want to react to what you said about social media. Because right now, it seems almost everybody is blaming social media for a lot of ills in society. And I'm wondering whether they're actually right. Uh, There are really great things about social media. And I'm thinking that, that perhaps it's getting blamed for 
the fact that already we are atomized as a society mm. and we aren't as communal in the way we design our towns, our cities, our, our ways of life as we should be. Yeah. So whenever there's an innovation in the way that we communicate with each other, it starts by with a huge, that goes through basically three phases. There's a huge promise. It's a new promise of American life. You know, when the, when the telephone was, was, uh, was first developed, the idea was that it was going to make everything easier and people were going to communicate better. A thousand flowers were going to bloom. And by the time it was ubiquitous across American households by the 1950s, there was a huge social problem, which is there are people that wouldn't go out of the house for two and three weeks at a time. It was, I mean, and people thought this was phase two which was where this new technology became a substitute for human relationship. People became lonely, they became depressed, they would sit in their darkened homes and only talk to people by the telephone, they would become basically antisocial. So phase two is always, it's the work of the devil. So the first is it's the work of the angels and then it's the work of the devil. And then phase three finally comes along, usually takes between 10 and 20 years when people accommodate to the technology and they take it from the substitution phase to the complementary phase where people learn how to use the technology so it becomes a basic complement to their relationships. The promise is too big. The second phase is awful. The third phase is basically we have a you know complement to the way that we deal with each other. Now, it turns out as a business proposition, I'll be an economist here for a second because that's you know what I do actually in my day job, uh, is that in the third phase, when it's a complement, it's actually really low profit margin these products because because it becomes a commodity it just becomes everything is everything else you know you can't tell really the difference between at&t and verizon cell phone service cell minutes are the ultimate commodity it just depends on the kind of coverage where you live that's actually what's going to happen with social media we're in phase two of social media which is like the zombies are coming to eat our brains we feel like it's ruining our society that we're depressed maybe we're even killing ourselves who knows it's just but but phase two ultimately, I believe, will give rise to phase three, in which we'll use it responsibly. Already, my kids use social media pretty responsibly, more responsibly, certainly, than people 10 years older than them. So some of these problems we're talking about might be solved. Well, I'm extremely optimistic, Richard. I mean, it's just, I, and I'm not a technologist. I'm not a, you know, I don't believe in the, you know, I'm not a utopian and all that, but I've just seen this pattern again and again and again in technology, and you got to go through phase two so you can get to phase three. It's going to be okay. How do we get to this place where, where we're so comfortable looking down on people who don't have the same kind of cool jobs that we do? We're classists. We're yeah. elitists. Yeah. That's our problem. We're immoral. That's the problem. We have a tendency to look down on people. We want to find people to look down on. And, and we went through a phase in American life where there was a big run-up in the amount of GDP per capita. Um, and so we were able to, to start consuming more and more and more luxury goods. And higher ed is the ultimate luxury good. It's super expensive. It, it is a mark of being of, of the ultimate intellectual leisure in a lot of cases. In, in point of fact, if you're doing, there's a lot, there's lower status, there's higher income, but lower status from engineering than there is from something like philosophy. Right. Still, and so sending your kid to college is something you need to do if you're going to um, be a member of sort of the Thorstein Veblen's leisure class at this point. Status is status is a is a is a terrible thing, but that's what we tend to do. If I can offer up another hypothesis, this role of or this this issue of needing to be validated and seen, and it's I, I wonder about status and and being willing to buy one's way and or buying one's child's way into a college, if that's also a way of making sure that child is 
seen. And it's, again, maybe a humanizing um, sort of motivation. Well, I mean, in point of fact, we know that when somebody has a college education, that life can be easier for the kid. That's not, not completely true, actually, because if you have a skilled trade, you'll never you know, miss a meal. It turns out, but there has been this. And you'll probably have a lot less student loan debt. You'll have a lot less student loan debt. You'll start working early. There's a lot of good reasons to do that, but most people don't know that. There's a, there's an information lag. It's a very interesting thing because my own kids are very different in this way. I had a kid who really loved studying and, and went to a, a fancy university. And my second kid, he's really, really gifted with his hands. And he wanted a job working outside where he could work hard. And he's, he, he bypassed college and is working as a wheat farmer in Idaho. And he's a carpenter's apprentice during the during the winter and he is a man fully alive and here's the weird thing he went to a prep school suburban washington a place in bethesda maryland a really nice prep school they they got him ready and nearly all of his friends went to college um a bunch of his friends now from his graduating class are kind of struggling in college and their parents will come up to me and said how'd you do that you know how'd you, how'd you find that job <laughs> you know i was like he found the job you know he was super motivated and he knew what he wanted to do and it was a question my only job was to say you know you have a responsibility to be honest, your responsibility to be compassionate, your responsibility to find the way that you can serve the most. And if, 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 um, if being a, making, he's making these cabinets, I mean, it just blows my, I'm so proud of him. I see the stuff that he builds. It's like, there is zero way I could have ever done this in my life. I have no idea how he knows how to do it. And he can shoot and he knows how to fly fish and, he, he drives a, a $400,000 combine. He's, he's harvesting 60,000 pounds of soft white wheat per hour. I mean, it's just, I got to tell you, it is amazing. And by the way, he's making money. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Arthur Brooks, proud of his kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so proud. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So we had a lot of things to say about why you should love your enemies and not just tolerate people you disagree with. And then also the broader questions raised by social media and, and the problem of loneliness. You know, the point that came through that I really like was that we're not saying everyone should just get along and be civil. And he's not saying that we should all agree. And Deb, I know this will resonate with you because the whole idea of heterodox academy is it's okay to disagree. We're not trying to all reach a compromise. We're trying to find a way to respect people enough that we can have really intense conversations about disagreements that are productive, that get us somewhere, that help us learn and maybe change our thoughts or maybe change somebody else's thoughts, but do it in a way that's productive. And for me, one of the big insights, and um, it gives me a lot of hope when we think about tribalism is ingrained, it's part of our nature, love is part of our nature. And when Arthur was reflecting on, you know, our, our genetics, our biology is not destiny, that we're in charge of how we respond to situations and when we feel that flare-up of emotion when we feel the contempt coming up that we can still pause it that we can delay our response time and and turn to a more constructive way of engaging with other people as people as opposed to dehumanized entities that we've somehow we've somehow othered in a way that shuts down families that shuts down communities and democracy yeah this is not necessarily about changing your mind or or thinking any differently about politics and about the role of government than you do or i do already jim and i disagree about a whole bunch of things but the 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 idea is that we can we can still go off and 
have a glass of beer after it. Yes, I really recommend this book. I mean, one of the things that's been so great over the last four years of How Do We Fix It? We're coming up on our 200th episode is getting to meet these these thinkers uh, and really engage with these ideas. There's so much that's happening in our society that really needs to be fixed and it's really problematic. And yet it makes me optimistic to talk to people like Brooks and John Haidt and and Francis Fukuyama and so many other thinkers that have been, you know, sitting here with us at these microphones and Deb with your organization trying to bring this spirit into college campuses. Boy, that's an uphill battle. But you're optimistic. Uh, I am optimistic. We're optimistic because we do see that change is happening. We do see people opening their hearts, opening their minds, and leaning in with curiosity and with humility and asking people, how do you see it? And I would give you all some kudos, too, for modeling how to do this in this podcast and inviting people to, to lean in and try out new ideas. Yeah, we want more disagreement, though. Yeah. We want people to tell us how to make it better. Right. <laughs> That'll be our how, next How do our we fix show. it? <laughs> this podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.